coming up next on the Passion Struck Podcast. One reason it's uh, hard to uh, choose our objectives is that uh, we are often planned for our future self. And we have this policy where we think that our future self is going to be much more of a superhuman than our present self, uh, uh, which means that uh, when we plan for the future, we uh, envision the person that doesn't get tired or hungry or frustrated or, or bored. And uh, that person, uh, uh, of course, will get up at 6 a.m., work until uh, at midnight. Well, not really. And so it's often hard to uh, plan because our plans uh, suffer from uh, uh, what we refer to as the empathy gap, as lack of empathy for our uh, future self. Welcome to Passion Struck. Hi, I'm your host, John R. Miles. And on the show, we decipher the secrets, tips, and guidance of the world's most inspiring people and turn their wisdom into practical advice for you and those around you. Our mission is to help you unlock the power of intentionality so that you can become the best version of yourself. If you're new to the show, I offer advice and answer listener questions on Fridays. We have long form interviews the rest of the week with guests ranging from astronauts to authors, CEOs, creators, innovators, scientists, military leaders, visionaries, and athletes. Now, let's go out there and become Passion Struck. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 176 of Passion Struck, recently ranked by Feedspot as one of the top 40 most inspirational podcasts in the world. And thank you to each and every one of you who come back weekly to learn how to live better, be better, and impact the world. And if you're new to the show, thank you so much for being here, or you would like to introduce this to a friend or family member, and we so appreciate it when you do that. We now have episode starter packs both on Spotify and the Passion Struck website, which are collections of our fans' favorite episodes that we organize into topics to give any new listener a great way to get acquainted to everything we do here on the show. Just go to passionstruck.com slash starter packs to get started. And in case you missed my episodes from last week, they included Dr. Valerie Young, who is the co-founder of the Imposter Syndrome Institute and the foremost expert in the world on the subject. And we go through everything imposter syndrome in our conversation. Plus, we touch on employee disengagement, the great resignation, perfection and so many other topics. I also had on Dr. Kara Fitzgerald, and she is an expert in biological aging and how you can reverse your own. And we discuss her new book, Younger You, and we lay out the program that you could implement today to reverse your own biological age. And if you like today's episode or any of the others that I mentioned, please consider giving us a five-star rating and review. They go such a long way in helping us to improve the popularity of the show and make sure it's touching more people who need to hear its message. Now, let's talk about today's guest. Dr. Ayelet Fishback is the Jeffrey Breckenridge Keller Professor of Behavioral Science and Marketing at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business and the author of the new book, Get It Done, Surprising Lessons from the Science of Motivation. She is the past president president for the Society of the Science of Motivation and the International Social Cognition Network. She is an expert on motivation and decision-making. And Dr. Fishback's groundbreaking research on human motivation has won the Society of Experimental Social Psychology's Best Dissertation Award and Career Trajectory Award, as well as the Fulbright 
Educational Foundational Award. And in today's episode, we discuss how examining behavior and the science of motivation became her lifelong pursuit. She provides her advice on how to combat chronic loneliness that so many people are experiencing today. We then do a deep dive into the science of motivation, covering topics such as intrinsic motivation, do versus do not goals, the loss aversion principle, the importance of microchanges and how they impact behavioral change, the pesky midpoint, and how to juggle and prioritize goals, as well as so much more. Thank you for choosing Passion Struck and choosing me to be your host and guide on your journey to creating an intentional life. Now, let that journey begin. So ecstatic to welcome Islet Fishback to the Passion Struck podcast. Welcome, Islet. I am very excited to be here, John. Well, I am ecstatic to have you on, and your book is just fabulous. For those who are watching, there's a copy behind her shoulder, but I'll raise a copy here too so you can all see it. It's called Get It Done, and we're going to get into that in a little bit, but you just recently got a recognition that it was rated as one of the top books by the Big Idea Club, and if people aren't familiar with that, that's got some pretty prominent people on it, including Daniel Pink, Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, who I've had on the show as well, Adam Grant. So congratulations. What an honor. Thank you very much. It also meant that I go to uh, talk with all of them. I uh, only uh, knew Adam Grant personally before that, so I was excited. That was nice. Yes. Well, Susan Cain is absolutely a pleasure, so I'm glad you got to meet her. Yeah. Well, I understand we both started our careers in a similar place, being the military. But prior to that, you lived in an Israeli kibbutz. Can you tell me about how both experienced shaped who you are? Maybe go into a little of detail in case the listener doesn't know what a kibbutz is and how this led you down the path to study psychology. Well, they, they definitely made me an unusual person in uh, the, uh, the department here at the University of Chicago. Uh, just to give some background, I grew up in a, a kibbutz in Israel. Uh, back then, uh, a kibbutz was a, a completely a socialist uh, society. Uh, that meant that it was a, a basically a place where a few uh, hundreds of families uh, lived together, where everybody uh, got the same pay no matter what uh, they did and where all the children grew up together. Uh, I was uh, part of a cohort of 20 children that were born in the same year and uh, always uh, were together and we slept together in the same uh, children uh, uh, place. It is very unusual for the the American context to to think about growing up in a kibbutz. I then at... um, Age uh, 18, uh, uh, did what uh, every uh, Israeli was required to do, which is uh, serve my country. Uh, I did one year as basically a counselor uh, and then uh, joined the army for uh, a couple of years before starting my career as uh, a student of psychology. How that influenced me? Well, in so many ways. In my work, uh, in, in writing the book, I often refer to my experiences in the military, which was a very different uh, system then uh, working at the university, it was uh, much more uh, organized and, and structured and, and uh, 
no goals were set and you had to uh, meet them. So I often refer to that as uh, uh, my job experience because being an academic is such an open-ended work. Uh, you ask about the kibbutz, like, wow. It's, I think the one big lesson that I learned is that uh, the situation matters, that you will be a different person depending where you are. And I had uh, a chance to grow up in, in a place that was so different than where I pursued my career as a motivation scientist. I, I, I could see that Ayelet was... Uh, in the like small socialist community is such a different person than the, the the researcher in a university that prides itself for inventing capitalism basically is so, the, the opposite of where I grew up and uh, uh, then let me say one more thing that you learn from this is that um, you can thrive in uh, many places okay? they they influence you but they also bring different good things about you and they make your life richer. Well, that's absolutely true. Well, I love to interview professors and scientists uh, because of the background that you have and the practical experience of doing all these experiments that support the work that you put out. And it's interesting, earlier this week, I released a podcast with a professor from Columbia Business school who is an expert on secrets. I mean, it was an interesting story to hear how he got into secrets, but how did you develop this passion for motivation? Well, there was no big secret there. <laughs> <laughs> I have some theories. I, uh, you know, I think that I was curious about how, how do you motivate yourself because I was kind of thrown into a, a situation of being a PhD a, a student without really knowing what it means. No one in my family had a PhD or, or a college degree at, at that point. And so I was kind of curious to know, well, how, how do you do this? How do you get up in the morning and, and do something that is uh, so much a function of your motivation? And I was very back then interested in uh, um, work that came uh, from uh, European universities, a lot by German uh, psychologists. So I uh, quote uh, Lewin was like the, like the first one going back to the beginning of the 20th century. And I was interested in more like recent uh, work uh, by uh, uh, motivation scientists. Uh, but it was not a thing in social psychology. So that, that was in uh, uh, the, the 90s. It was... Uh, uh, Early on in uh, the, the life of behavioral economics, that is very much about motivation, uh, I wasn't really aware of the work in behavioral economics at all, uh, which is funny because I'm now in a department that uh, is one of the main places for uh, behavioral uh, econ. Uh, and motivation was not really part of social psychology, but people were starting to uh, move in that direction. So there was a little bit. They were like... Uh, you know, Tori Higgins at Columbia and uh, Arya Kublansky at the University of Maryland. I ended up going to be a postdoc uh, with him. And so I was interested in something that didn't exist as a field in social psychology or econ. I was lucky to be interested in it just at the time when it started to exist, because I don't think that anybody can create a field on their own. Uh, by the time I completed my graduate degree and came to the uh, U.S. as a postdoc, uh, it was already uh, 
not something to uh, that you needed to explain when you said that you are doing work in motivation. Okay. Well, I can't wait to get more into this topic of motivation in your book. But before we do, I happened to read a fairly recent article that you wrote about something that I believe millions today are dealing with, and that is chronic illness. And it's something that keeps coming up again and again on this podcast. It came up in my discussion with Susan Cain, Katie Milkman, Kathy Heller, Dr. Sarah Fay, Gretchen Rubin. I know it's something that a lot of people are dealing with. So I thought before we went any further, we could get some of your advice on how to deal with loneliness. I actually did uh, two uh, the papers on uh, loneliness. Uh, the first one came out uh, around uh, the beginning the, uh, of the pandemic, and it was a paper in which we found the people that have food restrictions are more likely to report being lonely. And we found it in uh, like high-power uh, uh, correlational studies, basically uh, uh, seeing that uh, people that report food restrictions also report being uh, lonelier on loneliness uh, skills. And then we have an experiment in which we uh, serve uh, uh, one food to uh, some people and then a different food to one person. Okay, uh, For example, we brought students to uh, our lab and, and said, well, because you're not 21, uh, you cannot and, drink uh, the wine with the rest of the group. You'll get your own beverage. Uh, and uh, we found uh, that in these experiments, people that were unable to share the food, whether it was the wine or some other uh, candy, a uh, snack, uh, with others uh, uh, felt uh, lonelier. And it was interesting because it was just at the point in history when we stopped having meals with other people. Right? And now we are still not fully back to uh, having meals with, with others, but we are very much uh, on, on the way there. Uh, we found that uh, we, we connect through uh, doing things together, and in particular, we are connected through eating together, through uh, feeding other people in our life and having them feed us. And I'm not talking about uh, a parent feeding a baby. I'm talking about uh, uh, no, your aunt uh, uh, preparing a Thanksgiving dinner uh, for you. Uh, you, uh, uh, you invite your uh, cousin uh, to, to go out to a restaurant. Okay? You go with a friend after work. And, and how meaningful this is to elevate loneliness. Uh, so uh, uh, that we are... Somewhat back to uh, uh, eating together or mostly back to eating together. This is one way to uh, be less lonely, connect to people and connect to people, not just by talking to them, but by doing things with them, in particular, sharing uh, a meal uh, with them. And most recently, we found that uh, this is paper that is still in press. So the first paper was with Caitlin Woolley at Cornell. The second paper that I mentioned now uh, was with uh, Fei Fei Hong in uh, Hong Kong. Uh, we found uh, that when people feel lonely, they're more interested in uh, used products, uh, which really was uh, was an insight into the psychology of loneliness, where you if you cannot connect to to people, you need to find another way. If I, if I cannot talk to you, if I cannot you know, do something with you, then I, I want to maybe have a symbolic connection by you know, buying a, a used book from uh, someone, buying uh, some piece of furniture that belonged to someone. We looked at people that were entering either a new uh, bookstore or used bookstore. 
And we found that people that buy used books tend to be by themselves, whereas in the new books uh, uh, store, uh, people were often as a couple, okay, or as a family, okay, they were with other people. And it was really interesting that when you're by yourself, you're looking to make this symbolic connection to other people, partially by uh, getting their products, okay, getting the book that has a, a, no, someone wrote a note in it, dedicating it to it, another person that's read it before you. Well, thank you for that explanation. And I don't think anyone wants any of my used books because I highlight, I take notes, I do all kinds of things in them. So it would probably ruin the experience for most people. Um, yeah. yeah. By, by the way, I also want people to buy my books. So I'm not saying that people should get your used books. <laughs> but just joking, of course. I'm sure that John's uh, old books are, are great read because see his notes. Yeah, you could see inside my mind by looking at my highlights. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, inside your book, Get It Done, you lay out a framework, how you master motivation. And the first part talks about how you set a goal. The second is about how do you keep the momentum going? The third is all about juggling and prioritizing goals. And the fourth part teaches you kind of how do you interact with people to get the support that you need. And I'm going to dive into each section of the book throughout the interview without giving too much of it away. But I wanted to start out with why is it so hard to choose our objective? And what is the difference between do versus do not goals? So two questions there. Uh, one reason it's uh, hard to uh, choose our objectives is that uh, we often plan for our future self. And we have this policy where we think that our future self is going to be much more of a superhuman than our present self, which means that uh, when we plan for the future, we uh, envision the person that doesn't get tired or hungry or frustrated or, or bored. And uh, that person, uh, of course, will get up at 6 a.m. and work until uh, midnight. Well, not really. And so it's often hard to uh, plan because our plans uh, suffer from what we refer to as the empathy gap, as lack of empathy for our uh, future self. Uh, your second question about do versus uh, do not uh, goals. Well, it's better to set do goals because they are more likely to be exciting do goals are more likely to be intrinsically uh, motivating. They are uh, uh, not a chore. Okay? Do not goals. Uh, don't eat that. Don't smoke that. Don't talk to that person. Uh, don't engage in that activity. That, these are goals that seem less exciting, more like a chore. One problem with these goals is they tend to bring to mind exactly the thing that you are not allowed to do. So you, you think I, I should not talk to my ex and how do you know that you are not talking to your ex? Well, you ask yourself, am I? And by that, you bring to mind the thought that you were trying to uh, uh, get out of your mind. You ask yourself, no, uh, have I eaten uh, whatever red meat? And you bring to mind the fact that you are tempted by that food. Uh, another reason is that do not goals tend to elicit psychological reactance. And I know maybe we'll throw another uh, concept in psychology here, but psychological reactance is when you become the rebel that you were when you were a kid. You want to do something exactly because 
your parents or teacher told you not to. You want to eat the thing that you told yourself that you should not eat exactly because you told yourself that you should not eat that. And and that's not good for the goal and for your uh, success. One advantage of avoidance goals is that they tend to seem urgent. If you think that you should not do something, you probably think that you should not do it right now. But the stamina is lesser when it's not a good predictor of what you're going to do in the long run. We'll be right back to my interview with Islet Fishback. Need to supercharge your hiring? You need a super hiring partner. You need Indeed, which is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Find great talent faster through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match assessments and virtual interviews. And one of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because we all know we have pressing schedules and this simplifies the hiring process so much. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash passionstruck. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at indeed.com slash passionstruck. Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now back to my interview with Islet Fishback. Well, I love that you took my first question and jumped all the way to chapter 10 in your book. So did I? <laughs> Sorry. Yes, that's where you covered the feature yourself, but I'm going to just go there right now since we're there. I recently interviewed Katie Milkman, and if the listener is not familiar with her, she's a professor at UPenn Wharton School of Business. And we talked a lot about how your expectations shape your reality. And can you discuss that phenomenon through the psychology around the future self? What happens when we feel distant with our future self? Yeah, uh, well, uh, uh, Katie Milkman is also a good friend, so I'm I'm glad to hear that uh, you talk to her. Uh, we uh, published the paper together, and we are working on more. Uh, <laughs> to your question about uh, the future self, uh, we as humans we plan for the future, right? We have a future self. I don't think that my dog has a future self. Okay? She very much lives in the present. We partially live in in the future. We plan for what we are going to do next. We try to exercise uh, patience. We think about our future, whether we plan accurately. Well, that depends on uh, how much we remember that our future self will become our present self once we get there. And what research finds is that we consistently tend to be too optimistic with our planning, uh, thinking that our future self would be too diligent, more than what is possible, uh, hardworking, more than it's even possible, and care less about fun. To give you an example, this is actually a study that, that doesn't go very much to the, the future. This is people deciding whether they want to listen to the song Hey Jude by the Beatles or uh, a loud alarm clock. Okay, and this is a study that Caitlin Woolley and I uh, went here at the University of Chicago, and it sounds like a no-brainer. Who would choose to listen to a loud alarm clock? But we paid more for the alarm. Okay, and so the majority of the people in this experiment chose to listen to the loud alarm clock. 
Now, they are not planning for the very far future, okay? They will have to do it very soon. Still, by the time they make their choice, they are thinking, well, when I do the study, this is what I want to do. I want to do the unpleasant task that pays more. Then they they come to the study, they have to do the task. And, and guess what? The people that choose the alarm clock are much more likely to regret their choice than the people that chose the, uh, the song. In, in other studies, we found that when people plan their future job, they say that they will care much more about uh, pay uh, than doing something that is interesting and uh, and with people that they like. When they reflect about their present job, they say, well, doing something that is interesting with people that I like is absolutely critical to get myself. Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner. We at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things. And Indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities. From scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates, it's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees, and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers, according to a recent survey, say Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash PassionStruck. Just go to Indeed.com slash PassionStruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash PassionStruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at PassionStruck.com slash deals. Now, back to PassionStruck. Up uh, in the morning. And so what we learn is that it's important to plan for the future. We are future-oriented. It's, uh, you know, self-control is about the future. Patience is about the future. But there are certain biases in planning for the future, and they often evoke from the idea that this person is very different than the person I am now. Well, I want to get to patience later on in the interview because it's definitely a topic that's near and dear to my heart because when I was younger, I wish I would have had more patience. I think it would have allowed me to take on some of the early learnings that I ended up skipping, but we'll get to that. In chapter two, you introduce this concept of the loss aversion principle, and then you go into it again in chapter eight, where you're talking about learning from negative feedback. And I wanted you maybe to use the bag tax that you talk about in chapter eight to describe what is this principle and how can it be applied? The loss aversion is the idea that we care more about avoiding losses than missing out on gains. We, uh, for example, learned uh, back uh, a few years ago uh, when the city of Chicago and many other places in America issued a bag tax 
that people would bring their bags from home, okay, to the grocery store because they don't want to pay the tax, okay? They don't want to pay 10 cents for a bag, which is how much the grocery store was required to charge you back when the law was introduced. Now, that was interesting because at that time when Chicago introduced that law, it was already the practice in many grocery stores that if you brought your bag, they would give you a 10 cent discount per bag. Okay. So the deal was very similar. Okay. Except that one day, instead of getting 10 cents, now you have to pay 10 cents if you did not bring your bag. So we moved from, you, know, you could get a gain to you will incur a loss. Guess what? People's behavior basically changed overnight. Okay? We uh, personally, like my family, we used to forget our bags in our car all the time. But once we needed to pay 10 cents, well, we made sure to bring those bags to the store. And so it's an interesting uh, principle when you're trying to motivate people. Often uh, uh, losses are a, a greater motivator than the absence of gain. I think it's a very interesting principle. I thought since we're talking about giving people amounts of money, you bring up such an interesting story in chapter three of something that happened in the early 1900s in Vietnam. And I thought that it was one of the most fascinating stories in the book. And I couldn't believe I hadn't heard of it before, but I was hoping you could talk about that and then why you wrote about it for the book. I love that story. This is the story of the cobra effect that we are getting the cobras very soon. Okay? It started in uh, Hanoi when uh, French colonists were trying to get rid of the rats that were running around the streets and they had uh, a real problem with uh, too many uh, rats, probably due to the new uh, sewage system that they uh, installed. And so they came up with a clever bounty system. They would pay one cent per uh, rat killed. Specifically, they were paying one cent per a tail of what was supposed to be a dead rat. Uh, they they thought that the program was successful because initially they, they were getting a ton of like dead rat tails. Don't try to envision it. It's kind of disgusting. But anyways, what they realized very soon is there are actually more, not fewer rats running the streets and what they then realized is that they were paying people for rats. Okay? They were paying for tails. How do you get a tail of a rat? Well, you need to have a rat. And so the people of Hanoi were breeding rats. Okay? They were uh, creating more rats so they can get the money. And it's such a nice example of how incentives can backfire, how incentives can get you exactly the opposite effect of what you are hoping to get. I mentioned it's called the cobra effect because some years later, authorities were trying to get rid of cobras in India by introducing a similar uh, bounty program. And no, uh, guess what? Uh, if you are getting paid to uh, uh, bring in a dead cobra, you should have a live cobra first. So you're incentivizing people to breed uh, uh, cobras. Let me also add that this does not mean that incentives don't work. Incentives work very well. Incentives can get people to breed rats, which is not something that anybody would ever do unless they are incentivized to do. This means that you should be very careful with presenting incentives because you don't always know what kind of behavior you are incentivizing. 
Well, I think that's a good backdrop to ask you to discuss what the over-justification effect is and how that impacts behaviors. The over-justification effect is, is really interesting for me because in a way to engage in any behavior, you need some justification. So you need justification, but not over-justification. And the, the over-justification effect uh, goes all the way back to the, the 70s uh, when we realized that uh, kids will stop drawing if you pay them, if you reward them for doing it. And a researcher named Lepper did the original study at Stanford University. He gave children an award for drawing pictures. And as a result, they were, you know, after they got the award and it was no longer part of the deal, they did not want to draw any more pictures. It was interesting because if you think about it, when we pay artists to create art, they create more, not less art. Okay, and so uh, for a professional uh, artist, uh, when you pay them, you strengthen their motivation to to create art. Okay, yeah, uh, you provide the right justification. I can make it into a profession. I can connect to people through art. For a child that's creating art, if you pay them, you create an over-justification. They were not trying to impress you with a painting. They were not trying to make a living. Okay? They were just trying to be creative and have fun. And by creating this extra justification, the, the incentive ended up again, like in the cobra effect, uh, have the opposite effect, which is undermining the motivation to draw. Well, I think it's very interesting. I found this whole chapter to be very interesting, and it reminded me a lot about training my dog Bentley and about how you don't want to over-reward, whether it's an animal or a human, for the actions that they're taking. So reading what you wrote, I realized that I was training them in the right way because a lot of times I withhold purposely the treats so that there's always this expectation the idea is over time, you need to wean them off of them anyhow, so that they just start doing it because they've been trained. But I thought that that was a really good research learning that I received from what you wrote. Yes. Yeah, we know that this is the intermittent reinforcement uh, schedule that uh, behavior is introduced. Uh, uh, yeah, if you don't reward uh, a behavior all the time, your reward will have a stronger impact. Yes. Sometimes less is more. Yeah. Well, one of my other favorite chapters was chapter four, and you introduce intrinsic motivation. And I found it fascinating. I thought maybe for the audience, you could describe not only what it is, but why it is the best predictor of engagement in just about everything. Yeah, so I, I say two things about intrinsic motivation. One is that it's the hardest concept in motivation science to understand. And the second is that the best predictor of behavior. So let me explain what it is. Intrinsic motivation is the motivation that comes from doing the thing. It's the motivation that you experience when you enjoy what you do, when it feels right, uh, when uh, you feel you are growing as a person or you're having a lot of fun or uh, whatever is the source of positive experience, it's the motivation to do that can be separated from the motivation to achieve, from the motivation to get there. 
the long-term rewards. Uh, we can think of intrinsic motivation at work, for example, is the motivation to uh, you know, stay in your office for a few more minutes after you, you should go home because you, you really engage in what you're doing and, and, and you want to make progress, you, you want to work on it. We often compare it to extrinsic motivation, which is the, the delayed benefit. Okay? You'll do something and you, you'll get it uh, later. It's the best predictor of engagement because despite the fact that we've just discussed it as humans, we can think about the future, we still have our animal nature. It means that we care a lot about the present. We engage in something because it feels good when we do that. And so we no, we set a goal to exercise because we know that our future health depends on us being physically active. But how much we engage in the exercise when we are there or no, how much we go to the gym after we purchase the membership depends on whether we enjoy it, okay, whether it, it feels good to do. Okay? We, you know, students come to a, a college because they want a college degree because they understand that it's beneficial for them in, in, in the long run for their professional uh, development. But how much they actually study when they are in college depends on whether they find the materials interesting, engaging, whether they get some immediate benefit from uh, doing the activity. So intrinsic motivation is a better predictor of engagement than extrinsic motivation. A study that, uh, the one study that we looked at it, we uh, had people list their New Year's resolutions in January. And then three times during the year, we asked them, whether they are still sticking to these resolutions. <laughs> and now what we found is that people that stated the resolutions that they enjoy pursuing, that were intrinsically motivating, were the people that by the next November were still pursuing the resolutions, whereas those that were low on intrinsic motivation uh, gave up uh, by March. Uh, so intrinsic motivation is important. I also mentioned that it's a confusing concept, and I think that it's a confusing uh, concept because you know, first we need to realize that intrinsic motivation is uh, often critical for activities that are not only intrinsically motivating. Okay? Like we, we set an exercising goal or a new year resolution not because we are intrinsically motivated. Okay? We do it because it's important in the long run. But how much we can actually persist, that's a function of the, the immediate uh, benefits. I also think that intrinsic motivation can be confusing because we, um, now we, we think that it's, it's only about being creative. It's only about being curious. It's only about like some art or some hobby. We need to bring intrinsic motivation to doing our everyday work, to exercise, to uh, eat healthier food, to you know, basically doing everything in life. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because another person that we both know, Michelle Seeger from the University of Michigan, was on the podcast. And we talked about her new book, The Joy Choice. And a lot of what she was talking about seems to coincide with what you just brought up. And we've spent a lot of time talking about micro choices that we make every single day that most people are oblivious about, but really determine the course of your life. And in it, she talks about how in society we're taught to start and stop, but not really sustain. Do you agree with her thoughts? 
Yeah, I think so. Okay, we often think about meeting the goal and um, and then we will be done. Uh, in some areas more than others. So we do have an understanding, most of us, that um, you know, even though we set a, a retirement saving goal for this year, we will still need to save for retirement next year. Uh, but for many goals, like as healthy eating, we think that we should just... Uh, you know these lose these uh, a few extra pounds and and then we are done which by the way is a terrible goal for for many people because right as soon as you lose these extra pounds you start gaining them and so what was the point instead of forget about losing weight and and think about promoting health uh, we, we are obsessed with like meeting a goal and then dropping okay uh, dropping is is a real problem in in that context so you know meeting some exercising goal and then dropping it in my writing i give the example of thinking about like your daily uh, exercise goal is something that happens only while you exercise and so people me included who go to the gym will make sure to park very close to the door so that you don't have to walk the extra steps on your way to the gym right it's kind of ridiculous because if you want to exercise well, do a bit more walking, okay? Like walk to the gym, don't drive all the way to the entrance. Uh, like we, we tend to they, uh, do this, uh, let's just meet the goal and drop it instead of let's be consistent. Yeah, it reminds me of a story I recently talked about in a recent podcast episode on micro decisions. And I use the example of a gentleman named Stephen Dunier, who learned how to use micro decisions to change the course of his life. And he gave an example similar to what you were just talking about, that he came back from working a stint in London and was 25 pounds overweight. He was also not in the exercise that he needed to be, but he knew himself well enough that if he just set an ambiguous goal that I'm going to lose 25 pounds, it would never happen. So instead, he decided to take on a task that he wanted to walk these 22 arduous trails around Santa Monica, where he lives, and he accomplished them over a year and ended up losing 30 pounds and drastically improved his health. But what he learned from it was just the fact of putting step in front of the next step, and then before you know it, you've walked 100 meters, and then you've walked 400 meters, and before you know it, you've walked five miles. And I think so much of the daily actions we take tend to be the same thing if we want to make continuous progress. His goal was also more intrinsically uh, motivating. Okay? Walking is uh, better than not eating. It was also an approach goal and not an avoidance goal. So uh, he did that right. Speaking of goals, one of my favorite professors in college was Wendy Lawrence. She was my physics instructor, and she was probably one of the tougher instructors I had because she really held us accountable and really talked to us about why goals mattered so much. And Wendy ended up becoming an astronaut. And I recently had her on the podcast, and her message is all about the need to dream the dream. And she feels so many people start their dreams and then they run into an obstacle or they receive negative feedback, something you discuss in the book. And she realized that by taking constant action, something that you cover in chapter five, that it was extremely important for her on her path to achieving her goal. So 
I was hoping you might be able to use that as a backdrop for discussing the goal gradient effect, what it is and why is it important to our progress? So the goal gradient effect refers to our tendency to be more motivated the more progress we make. And you can see this, for example, with college dropouts, okay? About half of the people that start college in the U.S. will drop college, which is a huge waste of time and and money for these people. And they usually drop college at the beginning, like the first or or maybe the second year. Like If you think about four-year college, very few people will drop it when they are one semester away from uh, uh, getting a college degree. Uh, We see the same effects with with loyalty programs, gay people start a program, okay, make a purchase and forget that they are part of the program. When they're one purchase away from the reward, they are highly motivated to uh, get it done. Uh, you mentioned you uh, have a dog. I, I bet, uh, uh, you know, y- your, your dog is very happy to uh, to see you and so starts running toward you. And as the dog gets closer to you, they run more uh, quickly. Okay, they are uh, more eager and there is greater motivation. Uh, what we see here is a basic effect where your first few actions have uh, less impact on, on the goal than your last action. If we now we go back to my college degree example, your first year gets you a, a quarter of four-year college degree. Uh, your last year gets you a full uh, four-year college degree. And so you feel like you are getting more for the same unit of effort and that's motivating it also means that we can trick ourselves into being more motivated by thinking about what we've already done eh? and in a way exaggerating how much progress we already made if we are now for example think that we already signed up for college uh, last year so we're already like a year into the process uh, we feel that we are already like closer in relative terms to the end and you get this uh, boost in motivation by the way every marketing program that is giving you free uh, stamps or free progress this is what they are trying to do okay they are you know, trying to motivate you to stick to the loyalty program by giving you this illusory progress already on the goal gradient, okay, you are already uh, <laughs> making progress, but we can use it to motivate ourselves. Well, we've talked a lot about goal setting and how you make progress, but I really enjoyed the interview that you did with Daniel Pink recently. It might have been a few months ago, but Daniel Pink is known well for discussing the pesky midpoint. And Robin Sharma, who's another one of my favorite authors, also talks about it when he says, change is hard at first messy in the middle and glorious at the end. And you cover this midpoint in chapter seven. Why is the middle problem such a huge issue? And I thought because my partner is Jewish, using the Hanukkah candle example is probably a good way to explain it. So let me start with that, uh, that study with Rima uh, Tuatilleri uh, and now at Northwestern. Uh, we uh, surveyed uh, people in, in Israel that were observing the, the holiday of Hanukkah about uh, uh, whether they 
we are lighting the candles. And if people are unfamiliar with the tradition, it's actually very easy to celebrate Hanukkah. You don't need all these like uh, gifts and, uh, and and nonsense. Only the only thing that you need to do is uh, light the menorah on eight consecutive nights. Okay? Every night you add another candle. So we asked people whether they did that. Uh, most of them did that on the first night, like almost 80%. Uh, the majority of them did in on the last night, okay, so the, the eighth night of uh, Hanukkah. Uh, in the middle, uh, not so much. Okay? So uh, when you get to like day three and four and five, this is uh, when people are kind of forgetting to, uh, to light the, uh, the candles. Uh, now, this was just a, a kind of a fun illustration of uh, something that we're all familiar with, that we start something with a lot of energy, we celebrate beginnings, we end it with a, a big party, and we celebrate uh, getting to the end of something. In the middle, we work less hard, and we also lower our performance standards. So we also uh, uh, cut corners. Uh, uh, we... Uh, don't just uh, not do it. When we do something, we don't do a good job. There, there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that middle actions seem to uh, be a drop in the bucket. Okay? Like the, your first action, uh, your first uh, exercise uh, in the week, uh, it makes uh, 100% of the progress that you have made so far. Okay, Your last action. Okay, your last class toward the degree is 100% of the progress that is remaining. You are about to, to finish. In the middle, well, it, it doesn't feel like your action has much impact, uh, whether you look back or, or you look ahead. Okay, it, it feels negligible, so, so you don't bother. The other reason is that we also don't feel that we will remember what we do in the middle. And so we... um. We can kind of uh, uh, forgive ourselves for uh, uh, messing things up. Like I, I pay attention. I remember what I did when I started something. I pay attention to the end. In the middle, I don't really remember what I did, what I said, whether I was doing a good job or uh, not so much. And so we we tend to uh, lower our standards. Well, I have had that happen many times in my own life, as I think many people have. And I guess that's why Robin Sharma says it's the messiest part of the whole journey. Yeah, well, unfortunately, the middle is longer <laughs> than the beginning and end, right? So we, we say make it shorter, make it as short as you can. Well, I wanted to jump into part three of your book, which is you introduce competing goals through the lens of goal juggling, and you bring up the principle of maximizing attainment. And then in the next chapter, which we already covered, you discuss self-control through the lens of the future self. But I want to hit on the chapter on patience because it's one of the lessons that I hear Gary Vee talk about the most is that entrepreneurs don't have enough patience. People don't have enough patience in their lives. And I know it's something, as we talked about earlier, that's impacted mine. And in chapter 11, you introduce something called the marshmallow test. What is that test about and what can we learn from it about why waiting is so hard. The marshmallow test was introduced by uh, Walter Michel, and uh, it was a pretty clever uh, but simple test. You put a child, like let's say a five-year-old child, uh, in front of uh, a marshmallow, and you tell them that uh, they can 
have the marshmallow or they can wait. Okay? And if they waited, they don't really know how long they should wait. In reality, that was 15 minutes. But if they, they waited, eventually the experimenter is going to uh, uh, come to the room with, let's say, two marshmallows. Okay? There are different variations of this test with different foods, but basically a larger and later uh, reward. And initially, Walter and Michelle was interested to see what kids do. How do they exercise self-control? How do they motivate themselves? And later, uh, many years later, he realized that performance on the marshmallow test predicts uh, uh, all kinds of good things in life, that uh, kids that were able to uh, wait longer, that were able to uh, get the two marshmallows, uh, and later uh, we're getting uh, higher grades in school and we're doing uh, uh, well uh, professionally. In recent years, some of these effects were replicated, uh, some uh, didn't, and so uh, uh, it turned out that a single measure of uh, patients uh, at uh, age five uh, is not going to be a dramatic predictor of uh, uh, the rest of your life, uh, which I don't think is very surprising for uh, most people. But in general, self-control and patience, okay, when you measure it using more comprehensive tools and uh, interviewing uh, teachers and parents and so on, uh, that does uh, predict academic and, and professional uh, success and even uh, the ability to maintain uh, relationships with other people. And so patients being able to uh, go for the larger, uh, later rewards in life is a big predictor of success across all uh, these areas. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And I wish we had more time to deep dive on that. I think we could do a whole podcast just on that topic. Well, in the fourth section of the book, you go into social support and why it's so needed. And I wanted to understand from your perspective, what is the difference between role models and anti-role models? And why does that matter? And we're kind of closing a circle here because we started with loneliness and we end up with uh, social support and social support is, is indeed the, the fourth ingredient in uh, uh, motivation. And part of social support is uh, identifying uh, your, your role models in life and uh, uh, your anti-role uh, model, okay? The people that you don't want to be like, okay? So there are people that... Uh, represent how you want to conduct your life and there are people that represent how you don't want to uh, conduct your life okay so uh, uh, you know it's often important to also uh, know that you don't want to be like uh, you know uh, that that person that uh, does thing in, in in the wrong way that doesn't have the right priorities at work or, or in life or uh, with uh, with your family and and so on. But I want to say about like the, the, the positive role models, that the people that you, you want to um, be inspired by, that it's often better to have a role model that wants you to be successful than a role model that is successful by themselves. Okay? And, and uh, what I mean by that is that it really matters for us what the role models want us to do. Okay. Sometimes, often we know them, so we actually know that you know that that my uh, that professor uh, wants me to be successful, or that uh, my uh, father uh, cares about uh, uh, how I raise my uh, my family. Uh, 
sometimes we don't know them personally, but we still get the sense that they care about us. Okay? They might be uh, uh, leaders okay? or uh, uh, some inspiring uh, uh, athletes that, uh, that tell people that they want people to care about uh, being more athletes, to, to care about uh, uh, their health. And, and these are the people that have greater impact. Just you know, observing this like superstar that uh, doesn't really care about what you do, less inspiring. Well, I don't think we can come to the end of this interview without addressing this topic. How do you combat social loafing and free riding? <laughs> well, social loafing and, and free riding are, I know, the, the social diseases, okay? When there are uh, more people uh, doing the work, they, they do less. Um, I offer a few remedies. Uh, for the sake of this uh, interview, I will just mention one, uh, which is identifying individuals' contribution. Okay? We see loafing and, and free riding uh, when no one, often not even you, know how much you contributed. And if we go back to that, like uh, Wingerman's first study on social uh, loafing, uh, that was people pulling the rope together. And when you pull a rope with a group, which we all had experience doing, not even you know how much you helped the group uh, uh, pull that uh, rope. Uh, the, the solution is to... Uh, uh, attach your name to uh, what you do. If you are you know, generating uh, creative ideas at work, then uh, uh, let's know how uh, many ideas and which ideas John generated, which ideas uh, Ayala generated. Uh, if we are uh, um, preparing a potluck uh, meal, uh, uh, let's uh, uh, put a note where uh, uh, we introduce the cook. Uh, to the audience. Uh, once we, we know how much each person contributed, we have uh, less uh, social loafing. Well, a book I'll recommend to you and to the audience is one I recently read by Gene Olwang, who's the CEO and co-founder of Virgin Unite, which is the philanthropic arm of the Virgin Group. And it's all about partnerships. And she profiles 60 plus tight partnerships that she has been exposed to and why those partnerships and this social support were so game-changing. And I thought I would just use that as a way to introduce my last question, which is, what can we learn about the partnership of Murray and Pierre Curry about connecting through goals? Thank you so much for uh, introducing uh, uh, that couple. I uh, love to talk about Maui and Pierre Curie. Okay, Maui and Pierre Curie, very uh, highly influential uh, physicists and, and, and chemists and uh, discovered and developed the radioactivity uh, theory, uh, but also taught us about the relationship between goals and relationships. And, and basically they worked together, okay, they supported each other, they connected around their mutual uh, scientific uh, interests, Pierre insisted that Marie will be named on their first uh, uh, Nobel Prize. So he was instrumental in helping her uh, goals. Uh, the second one she won by herself. Unfortunately, that was after uh, he died. Okay? But they, they directly supported each other. They also had two daughters, which uh, uh, they supported and, and helped. Uh, their uh, oldest daughter uh, won a Nobel Prize. 
with their husband. Okay, so we see that the families uh, support their uh, all over the place. Their uh, other daughter, um, unfortunately, did not get the Nobel Prize, uh, but did marry someone who got the Nobel Prize. And so uh, that created the family with by far the most uh, Nobel Prizes than any other family in the history. And also one of the best examples for how much relationships are are critical to be successful at pursuing our goals, how much uh, seeking and, and providing support is uh, an inherent part of uh, achieving things in life. Well, I love that story. And I just want to tell the audience, um, I so highly recommend this book. It's extremely well-written, well-researched, and has tons of stories like this. And we've just shared a fraction of them across the different chapters. So please go out there and buy it. But if the audience would like to learn more about you, how can they find you? I would start with ayelatfishback.com or go to the University of Chicago website and search for my name. I hope that your audience will choose to read the book and I will be happy to connect with people also over social media, but everything is on my website. Just check it there. Well, it was such a joy and additionally an honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us and spreading your incredible wisdom. Thanks for having me, John. I thoroughly enjoyed that interview with Ayelet Fishback, and I wanted to thank Little Brown Spark and Hatchet Book Group for the honor of interviewing Ayelet. Links to all things Ayelet will be in the show notes at passionstruck.com. Please use our website links if you purchase any books from the guests here on the show. It helps support the show and make it free for our listeners. Videos are on YouTube at John R. Miles. Advertiser, deals, and discount codes are all in one convenient place at passionstruck.com slash deals. Please consider supporting those who support the show. I'm at John R. Miles, both on Instagram and Twitter, and you can also find me on LinkedIn. And if you want to know how I managed to book all these amazing guests, it's because of my network. Go out there and build yours before you need it. And most of these guests both subscribe to and provide their suggestions for both topics as well as other guests for the podcast. So please join us. You'll be in amazing company. You are about to hear a preview of my interview from the Passion Struck podcast with Ari Wallach, who is a futurist and the founder and executive director of Long Path Labs. He's also an adjunct professor at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. And we discuss his new book, which just launched this week, Long Path, Becoming the Greatest Ancestors of Our Future Needs. It's not just about avoiding the worst things, but it's about actually going to the things that we actually want, which is difficult because we have to be able to be creative and think about what it is that we want and have intentionality behind that. So those two things came together to help me think about a different way of seeing tomorrow and kind of got me into this kind of Again, the the term that I don't love, but this kind of classic idea of futuring or being a futurist. The fee for this show is that you share it with friends and family members when you find something useful or interesting. If you know someone who's interested in learning more about the science of motivation, please share this episode with them. The greatest compliment that you can give us is to share the show with those you care about. In the meantime, do your best to apply what you hear on the show so that you can live what you listen. And until next time, live life passion struck.